GBC Podcasts, local voices on demand. Hello, thanks for listening to the Gibraltar Today podcast. I'm Jonathan Scott. The Principal Auditor's Report continues to give us a lot to talk about. The Chief Minister Fabian Picardo will be here to give us his views very shortly. And it's Wear Red Day, encouraging people to wear some red clothing to show their support for heart health. We speak to Siyen Gadanya, John Milanta and Ingrid de Reeves. But first, we bring you the latest from the law courts, where three former police officers have been charged with attempting to pervert the course of justice. Our reporter, Jonathan Sacramento, was there. Jonathan. Three uh, former police officers. Uh, They appeared before the magistrate's courts today, and they've been charged with uh, attempting to pervert the course of justice. This is in relation to uh, an incident in May 2022, uh, the three men are Damien Ernest Serisola, Anthony Charles Bolaños and Sean Reyes, and they're facing uh, a charge of conspiring to uh, submit a false statement to a Supreme Court judicial hearing back in May 2022. And Mr. Bolaños faces a further charge of, in July 2015 and May 2022, creating uh, a false daybook entry with the intention of submitting it before the Supreme Court. Uh, the three men are represented by lawyer Chris Finch and uh, they all deny the charges. Their appearance in court was before the justices of the peace. These are uh, lay judges who take uh, uh, the bench when the stipendiary magistrate is not present and uh, the justices of the peace granted bail in the sum of £2,000. The matter now comes before the Supreme Court. It's, it, it will uh, it will come before the Supreme Court at uh, around midday on uh, the 29th of February. I know we have to be careful about what we say with this one, Jonathan, but um, bring us into the picture a little bit from the reporting perspective. Has there been a formal communication about these arrests? No, no, not at all. Uh, this is... Uh, look, we're journalists. We uh, uh, attend court every day and the court is uh, uh, is always as a matter of course it supplies us with uh, an overnight's list an overnight's list is something that uh, is essentially a list of everyone who's been uh, charged overnight uh, it's a matter of like it's a regular uh, procedure for us we go into court every day and we we check what's been happening uh, this uh, certainly wasn't the subject of a uh, of a statement or of any kind, uh, but uh, obviously, whenever uh, police officers, either serving or former, uh, are arrested, it becomes a matter of great public interest, and this is something that we would regularly report on. But of course, because these men have now been charged, and the matter may potentially in the future uh, be before a jury trial, uh, we are restricted in what we can report on. Uh, and uh, everything that I've told you uh, right now in the course of this discussion is the, uh, very cleanly uh, between the, the threshold of what we are able to report on from court proceedings. Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott.
We continue to talk about the principal auditor's report. The chief minister says it's important to remember that the accounts that it presents are already public and have been debated at length in Parliament. The auditor raised concerns about excessive overtime by some individuals in the public service and Fabian Picardo has told us that he promptly put an end to malpractice as soon as it was brought to the government's attention some years ago. And Mr Picardo joins us now. Good, good afternoon, Chief Minister. Good uh, afternoon, Jonathan. So for our listeners, if we start from the top, I mean, what is the principal auditor's report for you and, and what is its value as Chief Minister? Well, to a very great extent, the uh, the report is historic in the nature of the issues that it identifies. I, I want to explain a little what the process is like with the principal auditor's report. We provide the principal auditor the draft accounts for each year, a year after those accounts are closed, even though the supplementary appropriation bill may not be passed by the parliament in uh, in. Uh, that year, it may be passed a little later. Uh, so he has the draft accounts and he starts work on those draft accounts. But even before then, the principal auditor is sometimes pointing things out in the year in which things are happening. So in other words, not after the year has closed, which is the normal way that auditors work in the private sector. The principal auditor is also working during the course of the year as things are happening because uh, controlling officers and the financial secretary may be checking things off with the principal auditor or the principal auditor in analysing something that's happened in years before is also giving um, the financial secretary a, a heads up on something which he may have identified. Indeed, at the same time, we may be identifying issues. So in the context of this particularly heinous claim in respect of overtime, we had been identifying an issue and seeking to deal with it. And the principal auditor was pointing that out and is now reflecting that in his report. But we don't wait all of these years to receive the report and act. We have acted at the time that we ourselves have identified a problem or the principal auditor has alerted the financial secretary to a problem that we might pursue and act upon. So we've heard the government say in recent days that uh, the overtime issue was in the estimates for the opposition to have spotted sooner. They didn't have to wait for the... Um, principal auditor to identify it in his report. Is that correct? So exactly the point. So so just to make listeners aware of how this process works, the government publishes every year on a particular date set out in the constitution the estimates of expenditure for the following year. So once the financial year ends on the 31st of March, the 1st of April we have a new financial year and within a particular period of time, which is I think by the 1st of May, which is now a bank holiday, so they're getting on the first working day after the 1st of May, we give the opposition and every member of parliament the estimates. That estimate sets out what we think we're going to spend in this financial year and what we have spent in the year before. So you'll be able to see the estimate for overtime in any particular department and whether there has been an overspend in that department. What the opposition have been saying since Roy Clinton was elected into government is that the estimates book is not worth the paper it's written on because a lot of government expenditure, as the GSD established itself when it was in government, happens through government companies and therefore he has no interest in the estimates book. In fact, 
all of these issues, which Roy Clinton now pretends to be incensed about, would have been disclosed in a careful analysis of the estimates book, which is what the principal auditor is doing in partnership with the government, but of course independently, in order to produce his reports. So in the estimates book then, um, we've got sections by department. We can see how much uh, the department is submitting for salaries and how much they are... Uh, asking for in respect of overtime, or at least uh, you know, if we think about the yeah. years being covered here, we could. Uh, and and what you're saying is that the opposition might have seen that the ratio of overtime to salaries was fairly high, and that they should have spotted this sooner. Well, just as we did when we were preparing the estimates and we were seeing that the claims for overtime were becoming excessively high, although there is always a second uh, uh, opportunity here to to consider these issues and there was work being done. Now, you've got different types of issues here. You've got some issues where work is being done, overtime is being charged. It's very high. You need to say, well, look, we need to look at a different way of doing this, perhaps even bring in an additional officer rather than one officer claiming more overtime. And then you've got fraudulent claims for overtime, which have to be dealt with in a different way, potentially fraudulent claims, because, of course, some of these issues cannot be said to be fraudulent until somebody has been found to have committed a fraud. And in some of the instances that we are dealing with, the government's investigation have taken us down the route of potential fraud because people have been making claims when they're not in Gibraltar um, and uh, the way that claims have been made suggests that there may be an element of fraud there and there are interdictions in some instances or investigations of officers in respect of those claims for excessive overtime which could potentially be fraudulent and in other cases you don't have that you have somebody working a lot of hours perhaps because their family circumstances are such that they're happy to do that they're working weekends they're providing a service but that is being charged to the government at a rate which is in some instances three times pay if it happens on a sunday after a particular time etc and that is not an efficient use of the government's resources and we change that so you've said potentially fraudulent there have any matters been referred to the royal gibraltar police or, or could they be Well, I understand that uh, has happened in the past already, and some may also be referred to the Royal Gibraltar Police, not in relation to this report, but in relation to other ongoing financial years where there isn't yet a principal auditor's report. And in respect of that estimates process, uh, those uh, bids for overtime will have been submitted uh, to th- uh, by the controlling officer to the financial secretary. Uh, and and um, our understanding of it is then that it took a number of years for the financial secretary to spot that ratio because y- you say that the overtime uh, went back to the GSD years and, and has been happening for yeah. more than a decade, this sort of yeah. higher level of overtime. And we're taking the example of the highest paid yeah. uh, overtime individual as a case in point, just yeah. to help us understand the, the process and, and uh, the sort of potential problems identified by the principal auditor. And you're saying, well, uh, it, it reaches back to the GSD years uh, and therefore, um, you know, it, it, I think it's difficult for the public to understand why then putting to one side whether this was, you know, it started under the GSD, yeah. it continued under the GSLP Liberals, yeah. why has it not been dealt with sooner? So there are many different reasons for that, but let's take that example. For example, in that case, uh, first of all, things are approved at the level of controlling officer. 
Things are only approved at the level of financial secretary after we are elected and we say we think there's a problem with overtime generally and we want to control overtime. And if you're going to go beyond a particular level of overtime in a particular department, you need to bring it to the financial secretary for approval. Then after that, when we start to take an even stricter view, we start to see that levels of overtime in respect of particular officers are starting to get out of kilter with those officers' pay. So although the department is not exceeding its vote for overtime... When you start to descend to the level of the individual officers, you're seeing many officers charging no overtime or overtime, which is very much in keeping with what you would expect would be the normal amount of hours worked beyond the hours that people are conditioned to work. And some who are working so much overtime that their income from overtime is exceeding their income from their normal hours. That starts to happen when we do a more detailed analysis as the overall amount in respect of a particular department starts to go beyond and we need to start looking at the department in particular. And I can recall that that started to happen in this instance because actually it wasn't the financial secretary who raised it. I think it was at the level of the departmental head who was saying, I'm concerned about what is happening in this context and we need to deal with it. The individual involved was doing something which is important in the public interest and we didn't need to see through and therefore This is a case where real overtime was being worked and we were trying to identify how to better use government resources in order to deal with it. And then we dealt with it. I suppose the logic is if the opposition should have spotted it in the estimates, how is it that the government didn't spot it in their own estimates? The government did spot it. That's why we dealt with it. Sooner. Well, the government spotted it as soon as it started to get out of kilter and addressed it. I thought that it had been happening under the GSD for for a number of years. It had. But in the context of the department, it wasn't leading to excessive claims from the department. And that's why it was, to an extent, not something that was being highlighted through the department. The department then highlighted it and ensured that it was brought to the attention of the financial secretary, who ensured it was brought to my attention, and we started the process of dealing with it. But as I am telling you, here, you're not dealing with fraudulent cases. You're dealing with cases of work being done in the public interest, this was a particular area where we needed some of this particular work yes, done was, and discharged. Was the individual on, on constant call-out? In, in, in some respects, he was. And, and was that a, a real sort of thing? Like he, he was actually on call-out sort of most of the week and, and at any moment's call he might have been as far needed as, to work? As far as I understand it or understood it at the time that I dealt with it, the answer to that is yes also because if you didn't have that, then you would be transitioning to a fraudulent claim. And here the analysis was different. Here the analysis is we need to do this in a different way because you, know, you don't often have people who are prepared to be on call all the time. You actually have people who say, look, I need a work-life balance. I cannot cope with this job, however much money you throw at me by way of overtime. And that's how we had to deal with it in that context. So then why did you have to stop it the moment you found out about it? Because we needed to find that different way of doing about it, the, the work in order to produce better value for money for the taxpayer. Because if you buy something on overtime, you buy it sometimes during the course of the week at three times the rate. If you're doing that throughout the week for 52 weeks a year, that is not an efficient way of using government finance. And that's why I directed it should be the way that we provide the service, which is essential needed to be provided in a different way. And we're talking about one individual because it helps us to understand the process and, and, and the potential shortcomings. But we have a different case, which is the one that I told you about earlier. Let's also look at that, where we have individuals making claims which are manifestly excessive, which you can demonstrate 
or the, or the senior officers believe can demonstrate are not genuine claims and they you're in the fraudulent field. And in respect of, uh, if we put that individual to one side, because you said he has retired, there are others, uh, two from the same uh, team, as I understand it, within that department who, who continue in government employment. Do they continue to take home very high salaries that include these sort of call-out uh, fees? No, as I understand it, the solution that was implemented resolved uh, that issue in a different way. Okay, uh, is there something structurally wrong with the accountability in the civil service if, if this very high level of overtime uh, continued uh, and rather than potentially recruit somebody, uh, th these very high levels of overtime continued for, for more than a decade? Well, I think that there are structural issues uh, which we need to address even now in the context of the public sector, not just the civil service. That is uh, actually something that you would expect because the size of the public service in Gibraltar, the wider public service in Gibraltar, not just the civil service, is in the region of five to 6,000 people. This is a large organisation dealing with an income of approximately 750 million pounds a year which is three quarters of a billion pounds a year and an expenditure in the same region so receiving and spending 1.5 billion and dealing with 6,000 people you're always going to have these issues that's why the key thing that we are saying about this report from the principal auditor is that it reflects the very important and rigorous work that is done by that uh, department and by that particular uh, officer who is the head of that department and how it helps to highlight these issues which are, have been dealt with by the government already by the time that the report is published or are in the process of being dealt with in uh, some other respects. Now, uh, the opposition says that uh, part of the structural uh, you know, inadequacies would be addressed by a, a public accounts committee. Uh, you have said that the Commission on Democratic and Parliamentary Reform uh, found that this wasn't necessary. And it's that not something I said. It's something that it is in the report of the Democratic and Parliamentary Reform. Absolutely right. Uh, uh, what I mean is that this, is, uh, this has been your sort of response to the opposition on, yeah. on the question of whether... Uh, a uh, parliamentary accounts committee might be uh, necessary and and uh, yeah i put to you that uh, the gslp liberals uh, then do not intend uh, to uh, have that public accounts committee because the commission uh, found uh, that one was yep. not necessary, but uh, in respect of enlarging Parliament, the uh, that same committee found that same commission found that it wasn't necessary for Parliament to have backbenchers. Yet you are going to part with that conclusion, and your intention is uh, to actually enlarge Parliament. So, so you know, you're, you're using their conclusions to justify your actions even, you know, both ways. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it quite that way. I would put it like this. The GSD carried in its 1996 manifesto a commitment to have a public accounts committee. 16 years later, when they left government, there was no public accounts committee. The democratic and parliamentary reform was asked to look at how we should reform Gibraltar's democracy. We set out very uh, early to do certain things, including to uh, transmit Gibraltar's parliament on television so that people can see how we do Parliament in Gibraltar, and we did that even before the committee reported. There are some things where we have said, and in relation to enlargement, we have said specifically that although this was not our issue, we were prepared to consider the issue with the GSD because they believed it was an important issue on which we were ne not necessarily uh, against, but we were agnostic. 
on this issue, it's quite different. On this issue, we have taken a policy position in respect of a public accounts committee as a party for more than 40 years since we had the last public accounts committee sessions in Gibraltar, which almost brought our democracy to a halt. And we don't think it's in the interest of Gibraltar to have a public accounts committee for all of the reasons we have already set out. Now, if you look at the people who are on the parliamentary and the democratic reform committee, they're parliamentarians or people with expertise in parliament. But no experience of auditing. But no experience of auditing. And if you look at the principal auditor, he is a person who, although he's a senior civil servant, he has the heads of department who has people experienced in auditing, but with no experience of parliament. So I fully accept the auditing conclusions of the principal auditor, but you will forgive me for not taking his advice on what the parliamentary processes should be. I think that is something for parliamentarians to consider. But he, he is an officer of, of the parliament, isn't he? Is he is indeed, but he's not a parliamentarian. That's quite different. And indeed, the other thing I would put to you is that you will recall that very recently we were at the John McIntosh Hall together because we had a thing called a general election when the public had, once again, for the fourth consecutive time the choice of a party that said there should be a public accounts committee and the choice of a party that said there should not be a public accounts committee and those parties in the GSLP liberals succeeded in having our manifesto selected as the one that should go forward and therefore the will of the people is in keeping with the views of the parliamentary and democratic reform committee and indeed if I may put it to you also from memory I recall that in our current manifesto we have an indication that we would consider the issue relating to backbenchers or the enlargement of parliament so we also have a democratic mandate for that which is the reason that I would say uh, we are right to take the differing view we're taking in respect of the conclusions of that reform committee um, on the issues of the PAC and the enlargement of parliament. Um, Just before we uh, wrap up Chief Minister uh, a question uh, that comes in from Thomas will there be an internal investigation in relation of the excessive overtime and also the call outs claimed by some public service employees uh, that are detailed in the principal auditor report? So in respect of the the claim for overtime which has gone round on WhatsApp like viral, um, that was already dealt with. There was a, an investigation internally that was dealt with. In respect of um, issues relating to fraudulent claims, there is already an investigation and that some officers, I understand, have already been interdicted and others are being dealt with uh, in a different way. In respect of issues like, for example, the issues that are highlighted in respect of GJBS. Look, at the time that we were elected, GJBS days before the general election had been given a huge pay rise by the former chief minister who led the GSD. This increased the cost of uh, GJBS considerably. At that time, not now, all of the directors of GJBS were actually in financial secretary's office. And uh, for that reason, the increased cost of GJBS has been a concern of the government, which we've been trying to address with the management of GJBS and the new management of GJBS in order to get GJBS to become the efficient and magnificent machine that we think it can be for uh, Gibraltar. So all of these issues that you're seeing in the report, that's the work of government all the time, getting the value for money right, ensuring that we act on what the principal auditor is raising if we haven't already acted because we've identified it ourselves or he has told us that he's looking at something and, and it would benefit from us looking at it too. Well, Chief Minister, there's a lot in the Principal Auditor's Report, so I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it. Remember that there are two the reports there, not just one. It's yeah. a 900-page report, but if you cut it in half, it's the size, <laughs> each of them, of what they usually are. They are doorstops, but there's very important information there for every member of the public. On Radio Gibraltar and on GBC Television, Gibraltar Today with Jonathan Scott.
The Gibraltar Cardiac Association uh, are joining us now. Of course, you're a, a registered charity and, and champion good heart health. Uh, so it's uh, my pleasure to, to welcome to the studio, uh, welcome back, Suyen Catania, and uh, welcome, I think, for the first time, John Milanta and Ingrid de Reeves. Thank you for joining us, guys. Thank you for Thank having you us. For Thank you for inviting us. <laughs> um, what's the what's the importance then of of talking about how we look after our our hearts, Suyen? Jonathan, I think that um, everybody knows that the heart is a very important organ in our in our bodies, and at the end of the day, like we always say, irrespective of the color T-shirt uh, you support or you wear, we all have a heart, and it links us to every other organ. So, unfortunately. For whatever you might need in future in your life, if your heart is not in good condition, then it's going to be basically a domino effect and affect you in every single way. It's the engine, it, it sort of pumps blood and, and therefore gets oxygen to, to the rest of our body, it helps everything exactly. to work properly. Exactly. And things like, for example, I mean, and any operation you have to undergo in life, the first thing that you will have checked is to see whether your heart is in good condition to be able to undergo that operation. So we really need to make sure from a very early point in life that we look after it. And I think this is the biggest mistake we all do when we're young, that we only think that the heart's going to hit us when we're older. And the heart is an organ which can hit you, unfortunately, at any time in your life. And um, talking about sort of, you know, forming habits, uh, you know, that there are uh, lifestyle choices that we make which which, uh, can help our heart to be in better health or could... Uh, put us at more risk and I know that, that, that those are some of the things that we need yeah. to talk about today, right? Um, one of the issues, I mean, that we as a cardiac do, um, we run our rehab um, classes and part of the rehab classes as well for cardiac, cardiac patients is that um, we also have talks with patients as well and um, one of the aspects as well after her uh, is, is low insecurity between patients of what's to happen now after having a heart attack or medical intervention as regards medication, um, nutrition, health, and um, even a sex life, you know, in normal sex life after. And a lot of times, as you realise, it's not only a physical aspect, it's a medical, mental aspect as well, which you have to deal with. And, of course, it needs some reassurance. But, as I said, the message at the end of the day is really that... Um, we are here now, we're talking about it because we've had a chance, we've had heart attacks and we know it's a time to have healthier choices in life. Yeah. And sometimes it just takes maybe walking 30 minutes a day, if you can't join a cardiac w- class. Walking for 30 minutes 30 a day. Minutes, at least a day as an extra to normal activities and balancing your lifestyle. I mean, what you eat. I mean, si hoy te voy a comer un plato potaigo, un gallo y morcilla, at least tomorrow I'll have some grilled chicken with vegetables. You know what I mean? Something healthier. So it's a case of balancing and not making so drastic changes, but try making changes healthier choices. See, because sometimes we think of uh, the choices that we face in, in very absolute terms, no? And, and yeah. uh, we don't need to be so absolutist, no? No, as I said, it's just changing that little chip in your brain, you know what I mean? We need to make changes. I mean, they have to be drastic. And um, it can be done, as I said. And it's, and it's just having... Being the right mentality as well, I mean, um, to and, do with it. And what we see sometimes, or, or often, and I think it's to your credit, that um, that as a, as an association, um, you, you help to uh, empower people who have been through 
problems with their own hearts or, or perhaps in their families, and you really make them champions of um, you know what the good habits are and, and helping to have those conversations about those mm-hmm. incremental changes that we need to make. No, mm-hmm. it's important to have those yeah. conversations, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. That's very true because we do try at least once a year when we have World Heart Day. Um, we try and bring in people who have had heart conditions to come out publicly and explain, I mean, what they've gone through and what they've done to overcome maybe their fears, their lifestyles, and also show that you can lead a very normal, healthy life after you have a heart attack if you only but try. So it's a question, like Johnny said, it's a question of changing that little chip and changing the mentality. Um, and the reason as well why we brought Ingrid here is because the heart does not only affect men. It only affects, it also affects women. And this is something that we're also pushing out there, you know, that women also have to be aware that it can hit them too. Yes. Uh, we have to be aware as well. For example, my experience, uh, when I had my heart attack was uh, two years ago, I was 45 years old. I was very healthy and still very healthy, actually. I used to run the rock three times a, a, a week. Run around the run rock the three rock, times a week. Yeah. Wow. And uh, uh Eat healthy. I stopped smoking about 11 years ago, not drinking, and I had a heart attack. And so, we still don't know why. So, as a, I mean, we know that genetic, genetic yeah, factors genetic, also yeah, genetic, play a big definitely part, no? genetic. But, however, as the doctor Moore told me, and too, I was too young to have a heart attack because usually the heart attack for women are after 55 or 56, which after the menopause. Claro. You know? and, and you were in, in your 45. early 40s. Yeah. 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 So uh, even though if you eat healthy, don't drink and don't smoke, you can have a heart attack because that's what, what happened with me. However... Uh, little factors that sometimes uh, for a stressful life, a stressful uh, things that happen around you or work, uh, we don't realize. And I think that that was my... A wake-up call, no? Yeah. Yeah, so now I just more relax and just don't try to well, go see. to your life, you know, fast, yeah. fast, because sometimes it's just, you know, time change and everything moving fast, 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 and uh, definitely you have to sometimes just calm down a little bit. And, and, it, and it's easy to be sucked into that world of work. Um, yeah. You know, we all have mobile phones, everything needs to happen very quickly. At the moment, yeah. yeah. And, and, and we all sort of almost accept a high level of stress in our work life as as a normal without maybe questioning the impact that it might have in the longer term. No? Yeah, that will happen. Um, and I have to point out, as I said, I mean, um, heart disease has always been related to men as a men's issue. Yeah. But women die more of heart problems and cardiovascular problems than they do have cancer. So it's people, people don't realise that. So it's important to everybody to look after themselves and make a little change in, in their life. And like so, I said, I mean, if Ingrid maybe had not been as healthy as she was, <laughs> she might not have survived it. The yeah. fact that all the other factors there were in, the fact that she didn't smoke, the fact that she ate well, the fact that she was exercising, maybe all those factors contributed yeah. to make her a survivor mm. today. Had somebody else not been as healthy, maybe the heart the with all the other organs would have basically just had a day, so... It's the reason why we're here today again is to emphasize the fact that it's never too late to change your way of living. Yeah, because sometimes you, you hear people, uh, and it's difficult not to, to think about all of these factors in 
in the mix and, and how they come together because sometimes you might have a smoker who leads a very long and seemingly healthy life and, you know, it, sometimes people think, well, you know, look what happened to this person. They were able to, to smoke all their lives and why, why, should, why should I give it up or why should I eat healthily when, um, you know, you, you never know what role your genetics is going to play and it's difficult to, to take it all into consideration together and think, as you said, don't think in absolute terms. Think about making, incre- making your life a little bit healthier, taking a step towards a healthier lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, exactly. And thinking that that is going to help you to be a little bit healthier. Yeah. I mean, nothing like has to be drastic. Like I said, everything in moderation. moderation. And there's always going to be the exception to the rule. But is it worth taking the gamble? I don't think so. I'd rather play it safe and do things properly. Gibraltar is a very small place. We can easily walk everywhere. But unfortunately, we use cars. Yet, I am sure that if you asked everybody when they go on holiday how many steps they do, it must most probably be like having walked round the rock twice. So why don't we walk more often? You know, We're not telling everybody now, come on, let's tomorrow let everybody sign in for the gym. But just as part of your day-to-day, let's start by walking and then add on extra things as you go along. From my own experience, I must say that my wear, my uh, watch, which tells me how many steps, steps. I've taken, that's yeah. really uh, a really helpful yeah, thing to, to, for you to you think every day about mm-hmm. how many steps yeah. you've taken. No? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And it's it's such a simple thing and, and it's a relatively inexpensive, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you're somebody who wants to buy a watch, you can buy a watch that is a pedometer and, 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 and or, or even your, your phone your nowadays phone, yeah. Yeah. Can, your phone does can tell it you too. how many many steps you've taken yeah. and, and if you have some awareness of that you can uh, try to increase the number of steps. I think it's a, it's a way of encouraging you that if you've done say 10,000 steps today and that's going to be your target for the rest of the week, next week automatically you're going to want to do 11,000 and automatically yeah. you're increasing yeah. your exercises without realising it. It's just that obviously we tend to have a, a bit of a chip that says, you know, no, I'm not going to bother today, I'm going to take out the car. But yet on holiday... We all walk more than we ever do in gym. That's true. It's uh, it's amazing how much you can walk when you're, um, you know, exploring a new yeah. city. No, um, uh, okay, I was going to ask then, uh, apart from uh, the activity, I, I mentioned smoking. Uh, one of the messages is to, to consider uh, trying to cut back or, or, or even uh, sm- stop smoking, I guess, right? That would be the ideal. Um, we now have this uh, vaping <laughs> society, mm-hmm that has decided to give up smoking maybe and vape um, as an association. We are a bit concerned about that because I don't think there's been enough research about vaping. And I think now we're even having younger people vaping more than if they were smoking. So our message is ideally try and give up smoking full stop. There is a cessation clinic which can help you. Sometimes in, in basically in offices, the same as people diet together, why not give up smoking together? You know, it's things that are going to help you. The genetic side is something we cannot do about, but let's try ticking the boxes of the things we can really do. So we've also spoken about um, stress. Uh, another risk factor would be uh, diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, those are conditions. Well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so, high so, blood pressure. High There's blood a lot pressure of factors is, yeah. which, which together combined become like a, an explosive... Mm. combination so let's try i keep on telling everybody let's try and tick the boxes you know that are going to maybe cause problems and obviously have checkups if in any doubt get yourself seen to buy gp come and talk to people who've actually had heart attacks before if you're worried about anything and 
we always keep saying prevention is much better than cure. Okay, and uh, other uh, risk factors that uh, people should keep in mind and, and maybe speak to their GP about uh, if they've had, uh, uh, if a mother has had complications during pregnancy or, or if uh, they are um, suffering from the menopause, then uh, that is a reason to uh, think about your heart health and try to, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, as we said, make changes elsewhere in your life to, to try and reduce the risk uh, in the longer term. Um, before we let you go, guys, uh, the Cardiac Association, um, uh, if somebody is listening to this and thinking, I, I want to get involved or I want to speak to them, um, what are the best ways to do that? They can contact our website or they can contact us on Facebook. We've got a messenger system which automatically we look at every day and we'll be more than happy. We're always busy fundraising and doing events and we welcome volunteers from everywhere. And not only that, if you think that you want to discuss a, a symptom you might have or you've had a bad experience, contact us because we've got people within the committee which will be more than willing to sit down with you over a coffee and have a chat um, today has been great. Unfortunately, we were supposed to be out there with our roving frame, but we lost a very dear and founder member of the association, Keith, only two days ago. So we aren't out there ourselves to take photos, but we urge everybody who's dressed in red, please take a photograph, post it on social media, because we really want to get the message out there. Thanks for listening to those highlights from Gibraltar today. I'm Kelly M. Borge, the show's producer. We're live on Radio Gibraltar Monday to Friday from 1 to 2, getting behind the headlines. And you can catch up here whenever you like. Until next time, have a good one. GBC Podcasts. Local voices on demand.